Uh, we did finish the book of Revelation as far as a verse-by-verse -verse exposition, but I'm going to give three more bird's-eye views, and this uh, sermon today will be uh, doing so through the lens of the songs of Revelation. Revelation 15, beginning at verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. In them the fury of God is completed. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who prevailed over the beast and over his image and over the number of his name, standing on the glassy sea, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the slave of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who could not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? Because you alone are holy, because all the nations will come and do obeisance before you, because your righteous judgments have been manifested. After these things I looked, and the sanctuary, the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened, and out from the sanctuary came the seven angels, the ones having the seven plagues. They were clothed in pure, bright linen, and were girded around the chest with golden belts. Then one of the four living beings gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full with the fury of God, the one who lives forever and ever. The sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to go into the sanctuary until the seven angels' plagues were completed. And I heard a loud voice from the sanctuary saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the bowls of God's fury on the earth. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. And it is our delight to study it, to understand it, uh, to uh, seek to live it out. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would uh, continue to guide us as we continue to worship in our responses to your scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Story goes that on Easter morning, 1799, the citizens of the Austrian town of Feldkirk heard noises outside of their walls and as they investigated, they discovered that Napoleon's army had encamped around them during the night. It was still uh, pitch black outside. Uh, they knew that there was no way that they could defend that city against Napoleon, and uh, they didn't think that the Austrian armies were anywhere close to give any relief. So they called a meeting to decide whether or not they would hoist the white flag of surrender or whether they would try to hold out and get messengers to uh, the Austrian army. Well, the dean of the church rose first and he spoke to the solemn group and in a trembling voice he said, this is Easter day. This is the day of our, Lord, our king's resurrection. We must have one moment of triumph. Let us at least ring the bells. If the town falls, it falls, but we must ring all the bells of Easter. And after some discussion and debate, they agreed, well, let's at least not spoil Easter day. And soon from the church towers, the bells began ringing all over the town. Well, the invaders who were massed outside the gate in the darkness were so surprised by this note of celebration, they assumed that the Austrian army had come during the night and uh, was there to relieve them. And so before the bells had even stopped ringing, they had picked up camp and uh, fled. Uh, the vibrant, confident music of that morning sent the enemy into retreat. Well, we see a similar thing in the book of Revelation. Uh, there are, by one scholar's count, 
There, there are some differences, but by one scholar's count, 28 songs in this book. I happen to think there are just a few more, uh, maybe three more, but um, some of these are only fragments, but several of these songs result in God's immediate judgments being inflicted upon the church's enemies. There seems to be a cause and effect relationship between their singing and the judgments that follow. We'll be seeing that just as the prayer meeting of chapter 8 resulted in regiment after regiment of angelic soldiers being sent forth uh, and uh, resulting in uh, spiritual warfare, there is exactly the same kind of cause and effect between the songs of Zion and the retreat of the enemy. So this morning I want to investigate why is that the case? Why are there some, uh, some worship services, some songs that have such power behind them that demons literally flee and then there are other worship services that have zero impact upon the enemy zero impact no impact whatsoever well I believe the first reason is that Jesus is present in the songs that send the enemy into retreat did you know that Jesus sings in the midst of the congregation well, not in the midst of Laodicea, but in the midst of some congregations. He says in Hebrews 2, verse 12, In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And likewise, Jesus prays in the midst of the assembly. Uh, I've already preached on that in, in Revelation chapter 8, but if you'd go ahead and turn there, I want to uh, demonstrate that this is the case. This is not one of the songs, but it does parallel the songs in its effect. Chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. And when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, Edersheim says uh, this was about the amount of time that it took for the high priest to make all of the preparations behind the curtain and lay out the incense and when he lit the incense there was a cloud of smoke that would go up and when that cloud of smoke went up over the curtains and the people could see it on the other side that vast assembly of people that was a signal for them to start uh, praying and the incense symbolized the fact that Christ's prayers must precede and accompany our prayers in order for those prayers to be answered to be effective but when Christ's prayers are with ours, they're always answered. Why? Because the Father always answers and hears his son's prayers. And um, it's a similar uh, kind, oh, in fact, let me go ahead and, and, and read it, uh, verses 2 through 6. And I saw the seven angels who stood before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer. He was given lots of incense so that he could offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar that is before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, threw it at the earth, and there were voices and thunders and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to trumpet. So what kind of prayer meeting has that kind of power? Well, according to this passage, it is only those prayer meetings that have prayers that are connected where the incense is lit from a coal from off the altar representing Christ's finished work on our behalf and in which the incense of Christ's prayers accompany our prayers. 
Well, the same is true of music. When Jesus is present, God pays attention. He listens. Our worship is accepted. Our songs have spiritual power against the enemy. But without Christ's presence, our worship not only is not effective, it's an abomination in God's sight. In Amos 5, God told the church of that day, I hate, I despise your feast days. I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. Well, in the same way, you can almost guarantee that the church music of the church of Laodicea uh, had zero impact upon the enemy because God was not pleased with that worship. Uh, when we preached on uh, Revelation 2, we saw that he was ready to puke Laodicea out of his mouth. And in fact, he had already left the church. He was not even in that church. He was outside the church door knocking on the church door. And yet Laodicea did not recognize it. They uh, went on with their preaching, their prayers, their songs, all of their programs, thinking everything was fine, but it was not. There was no power in their worship because Jesus was absent. So what is it that makes some worship force demons to flee like the demon that was harassing King Saul was forced to flee when David played his psalms? Uh, what makes for worship songs that result in judgments upon human enemies as happened under Jehoshaphat when he marched against enormous odds confidently singing about God's victory. He didn't even have to lift his sword. The enemy killed each other off in that situation. But there was a direct cause and effect relationship between his army's singing and the victory that he achieved that day. So that's what I'm examining today. What is it that makes for uh, this kind of a power in our singing? And the first answer is that Jesus must be present and when you have Christ present, you have faith. You're not just going to be going through the motions. Your songs are going to reach heaven because of faith. That's the second condition for power in our songs. Faith sings in a way that lifts us above our afflictions and difficulties. And by the way, it's not just superheroes that can have that faith. Absolutely anyone can have that faith. In 1 John 5, verse 4, it says, For everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. So Revelation songs show a victorious faith in the midst of difficulty. I'll just give you some samples. It takes faith for a persecuted people to say, you have made us kings and priests to our God in chapter 5. Or to affirm in chapter 7, verse 10, that Jesus is sitting on his throne. In AD 70, it would have taken great faith to saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, just looking at life through their physical eyes, they didn't see that. All they could see was disaster around them, but the eyes of faith enabled them to see something different. They could see that Christ was on his throne, advancing his church so effectively it was battering down the gates of Hades. Though the beast ruled over the kings of the earth, the songs of this book confidently affirm a number of times the beast is just a pawn in Christ's hands. He's the one who's sovereign, not the beast. 
Now, some might object, and they and I, people have actually objected to this, and they say, well, those are songs of heaven. Of course they're going to be confident. Of course they're going to have faith. They don't have to go through all of the struggles that I have to go through down here on earth. But as we went through each of those songs in our verse-by-verse -verse exposition, we saw that heaven's worship was intended to be the paradigm for our worship. Heaven's confidence was intended to be the paradigm for our confidence. In fact, the saints on earth join with the worship of heaven. As Hebrews 12 words it, the church's worship on earth is supposed to be caught up to the heavenly Zion, join with innumerable company of angels, the general assembly, the church of the firstborn. So God wants us to glory in exactly the same music that heaven itself is singing. Um, he wants us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if heaven is the paradigm for everything that we do here on earth, as Colossians 3 verses 1 through 2 insists that it is, well, that means we need to be imitating the songs of heaven and the instrumental music of heaven and the attitudes of heaven. Um, John's own song of praise on earth in chapter 1 has the same character as the heavenly songs. And we actually see commands uh, for earth to join heaven in these worship songs. For example, in chapter 5, we've got some magnificent songs going on in heaven. And the text goes on to say that every creature which is in heaven and upon the earth is supposed to sing that song. Not just those in heaven, but those upon the earth as well. The songs of chapter 14 are called gospel songs in verse 6, indicating they are sung in the region where the gospel is needed, on earth, right? And the command in the next verse is to proclaim the message to every ethnic nation and tribe and language and people. The point is, I don't think it's fair to just rule out the book of Revelation and say that we, th there's no comparison. Uh, we do need to measure earth's music by heaven's music. And when we do that, I think that the church's music many times falls short. Um, these 28 songs of Zion uh, require faith and they stir up more faith. For the saints in heaven, this whole book is a book of the victorious advancement of Christ's kingdom. They don't have even the slightest doubt about the fact that Jesus is on his throne, that he's advancing his kingdom, that the gates of hell are in danger. <laughs> They're being uh, battered down. Not a shadow of a doubt. They end chapter 5 by affirming that Jesus is already on his throne. We're not waiting for that. They do that again in chapter 7 and in chapter 11 and in other places in this book. And what they're doing is they're modeling what kind of faith content we need to have in our songs. In chapter 12, verses 10 through 12, after the ascension of Christ to heaven, and then later there's warfare between Satan and his angels and God and his angels, there is a song that bursts forth, and it's a song of triumph, despite the fact that these people are losing their lives. What is going on with that? It says, Now the salvation and the power have come, even the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, because the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accused them before our God day and night. And they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not cherish their lives even up to death. <laughs> that is the kind of attitude 
that is going to be infectious, that will raise up soldiers who are willing to lay down their lives for Christ, if Christ is glorified, if his kingdom will be advanced. So despite the best efforts of Satan to keep the church from converting the world, the growing church is singing songs about a growing and unstoppable church. The martyrs sing in, in chapter 15, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. And I love their confidence. All, this is a mission's confidence. How successful will our missions be? He says, all nations shall come and worship before you. So here's the question. How can Christians have that kind of faith in the face of the kind of persecution that this book outlines? Well, I believe the answer is that they see themselves as seated with Christ in the heavenlies. They have Christ's presence with them. That's what gives them uh, this sense of authority. Nero saw John as imprisoned in the prison island of Patmos, but John did not see himself as imprisoned. He's a prisoner of Christ. He's not a prisoner of Nero. And uh, he is part of a church which is a kingdom. It's an advancing kingdom. And it's a kingdom full of priests that are taking over uh, this world. So it's a triumphant song of praise to God and a total belief that he is reigning. And you look at the words of that, you can see John pictures himself as seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Well, every one of us has that privilege. Ephesians 2 verse 6 says that God raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So if you examine the songs of this book, I think you will see the kind of faith they have is a faith that springs from an authority of kings being seated with Christ in heaven. But singing good songs not only showcases faith, it stirs up more faith. It's kind of a circular uh, circular reinforcing rhythm as week after week we come in and we get our attitudes adjusted. Uh, we sometimes come to worship with bad attitudes or discouragement. And the song sometimes can generate that faith and that enthusiasm for the Lord once again. What a church sings can either kill faith or can stir it up. Some of the sentimentalism that is sometimes sung can elicit good feelings uh, if the lights are right and the air conditioning is good. Uh, but they're not going to do much in the face of loss. They're not going to do much in the face of persecution. So that's the second thing that these songs show. Incredible faith in the face of disaster. It's a faith that rises above that disaster. And when you sing songs without faith, you will not have this power. Now the third point gives the reason why these songs are so faith-filled. They are not man-centered songs. They are not problem-centered songs. They are not Satan-centered songs. These songs show an incredibly rich theology and a God-centered theology. Now, I'm not going to go through every song, but let me just give you some samples. John's song in chapter 1, verses 5 through 6 says, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins with his own blood, indeed, he made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So this song reflects upon the fact that God loved us before we loved him. He loved us before we were even washed, which means we were pretty filthy, pretty unlovable. 
Uh, this song uh, reflects upon the fact that there is a, an atonement, an appeasement of God's anger. This, uh, by the way, just talk with liberals sometimes. See what they say about the word atonement. They do not like it because it implies God's wrath, right? It, this speaks of the seriousness of sin, the, the, the nature of the church being a kingdom, not a ghetto. It speaks of the church as being made up of priests who are intended to reconcile sinners to God. We're here, it says, to serve Christ and his kingdom, not for Christ to serve us in our kingdom. Um, uh, we are here, uh, it says, uh, well, it's got some interesting Christology and theology I won't get into, and an affirmation that we want God to receive all of the glory. The point is, this is a very God-centered and theologically rich song, and you can see that in all of the songs. I'll just give a listing. Revelation 4, verse 8, four living creatures praise God's holiness over and over, and in the majority text, it's three groups of three holies. Holy, 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 holy. Have I repeated myself enough times to irritate some people who have real prejudices against repetition in songs? No, if it's God-centered, God-focused, it's looking at his character, the scripture has a great deal of repetition. But it goes on, the Lord God Almighty, he who was and who is and who is coming. Revelation 4, verse 11, the 24 elders sing that God is worthy because he's the creator. Revelation 5, 9 through 10, the elders and the living creatures say the lamb is worthy because he's the redeemer. Actually, if you read that whole song, it is dense with theology. Revelation 5, verse 12, the angels, elders, and living creatures exclaim that the lamb is worthy. Chapter 5, verse 13b, every creature praises God and the lamb and there's nothing man-centered about these songs. Chapter 5, verse 14, every creature says amen to the God-centered song, so earth is imitating heaven. In Revelation 7:10, a great multitude sings that salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. Revelation 7, verse 12, the angels ascribe praise, glory, etc., to God. Now, I'm not going to go through all of the songs, but you cannot read through the songs and miss the point of how God-centered they are. I wanted to walk out of a church one time here in Omaha when they were singing butterfly kisses in the middle of a service, because it was Mother's Day, right? So we need to honor the, the mothers. But I don't have any problems people singing that to their daughter in their home, but this is the center of worship of Almighty God, and it has nothing about God in there. It is a, it's just crazy. Songs are not about what God thinks of how important I am, or my feelings, or my self-esteem. All of these songs reflect people who have gotten way beyond themselves to a vision that is far greater than themselves. In fact, God is so great in their minds, they are lost in wonder. They are lost in worship of this great God. These are songs that are sung by a people with a passion for his glory, saying, Amen. The blessing and the glory and the wisdom and the thanksgiving and the honor and the power and the strength to our God forever and ever. Amen. And as you go through song after song, you realize they're not designed for warm fuzzies, even though they do arouse our emotions, but it's in a God-centered way. It gets us beyond our problems. Uh, they're about exalting God and our praises. And what they're actually doing is they're painting man as very small. 
and they're painting God as huge on the canvas of their minds, making these songs worthy of the Lamb, worthy of God. For most of my life, uh, the contemporary music, which is no longer contemporary because I'm pretty old, but uh, as I've gone through, most of the songs have had very weak theology, feelings-oriented, man-centered, and were pietistic. But I've seen some encouraging changes in the last decade. Um, I, I keep looking at what are the top songs that the church uh, sings. And for example, in 2017, 2018, if you were to look at the top 100, top 50, top 10 uh, songs, uh, you will find that some of those lyrics are very God-centered. They are theologically rich. And I praise God for that. You can evaluate the health of a church by its songs. And based upon song usage, I would say that amongst the remnant at least, there is a militant, victorious faith that is beginning to emerge that to me is exciting. It's very encouraging. God wins battles not through majorities anyway. Almost always it's been through tiny, tiny minorities. But one of the things I was struck with as I studied the 28 songs of Revelation is how manly they are. This is the next point in your outline. Very few contemporary songs that are manly like these songs are. There are a few, and we sing them, uh, but um, many of these songs in Revelation are war songs against the evil in the world. They're similar, actually, to the manly prayers in this book. Now, I already mentioned that in chapter 8, the United Prayer Meeting resulted in God's lightnings, thunderings, regiment after regiment of angels being sent out, bringing judgments, growing the church, vindicating the saints. Well, the music in this book has the same function, and I don't um, have time to show all of the examples of how this is such manly warfare, but let me give you three examples so that you get a feel for what this book is doing with music. In chapter 11, verses 17 through 18, the church shouts forth an imprecatory song that exhibits a total trust in God's sovereignty, lays claim to his promises, and asks for his judgments against his enemies. It is not a song for the faint of heart. <laughs> Some people cringe when they, when they read that, but because that was sung in faith, God responds, and the next verse says, and the temple of God in heaven was opened. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and huge hail. So they're worshiping, and as they worship, heaven is opened. Heaven responds, and it shows it's uh, heaven's approval, and the angels of heaven, I believe, are waiting for the church to get its act together and to have this kind of singing. God is responding to the songs of faith being sung in Revelation by a beleaguered church. He's responding to the Easter bells of Feldkirk. Like that little town, the church of the first century was under enormous siege by a mighty adversary. Chapter 2, verse 9 says that the church of Smyrna was undergoing tribulation. He said, Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. You will have tribulation ten days. Church of Pergamos already had martyrs. And the rest of the book of Revelation says in the next few years, things are going to get much, much worse. And yet throughout the book, there is a confidence, there is a joy, there is a celebration of Christ's victory. Now with their eyes, they could not see any victory. It's almost the opposite with their eyes. But 
with the eyes of faith, they're able to see things from heaven's perspective. And because they sang these songs of faith, Revelation shows time after time that God responds with judgments against the enemy and conversions of new believers. Chapter 6, uh, there is a massive tribulation, but the saints cry out for avenging. It's an imprecatory cry. Now, some people call it a complaint, but actually there's, there's faith in that prayer. They, they, they know he's going to vindicate them. They just don't know how long it's going to take. And he says, just wait a little bit longer. And when we went through our series there, we say they didn't have to wait long at all because in chapter 7, God pours out his judgments, and in response to God's judgments, those same saints cry out, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. They don't shrink from God's judgments. They agree with them. They say amen to them. In chapter 11, it looks like everyone has ganged up against the two witnesses, uh, the only faithful ones left in Jerusalem, and they eventually die. Last two prophets are killed, and yet the church does not give up. By faith, they lay claim to a victory yet unseen. They cry out saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms, this is past tense, it's just become, right, have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is one of the most astonishing statements of faith in the entire Bible. Why do I say that? Because they sang that at the height of the apostasy, the great apostasy. Christ had said that within 40 years in that generation would be the greatest tribulation to ever come in world history against the church, the greatest apostasy to ever happen in world history, and such loss of life that the church would almost be extinguished. And yet here they are rejoicing in Christ's victory that he has just now received the kingdom. It's just, I love it. It's just incredible faith that they demonstrate. Jesus had said that the tribulation would be so great that if God did not shorten it, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days would be shortened. So it looks like they are losing, but of course, God had already predicted that. The saints are going to be defeated, defeated, and then from that point on, there's going to be nonstop uh, growth. So this is the time that they are saying is just like Joshua going into the land of Canaan about ready to possess his possessions. So yes, the previous generation, both in AD 30 to 70, 40 years, as well as in, in Joshua's day, the previous generation died in the wilderness in unbelief. This was the time of great apostasy, right, prior to AD 70. But there was a new generation arising that was ready to take on Jericho. And of course, because of faith like this, the church grew phenomenally during the first three centuries. Scripture says, according to your faith, let it be to you. The church of the first three centuries had nonstop evangelistic victory with nation after nation becoming Christian until finally Rome itself declared itself to be Christian as well. Why? Why did they have such victory? Why did the, the people in the 1800s have such victory in missions all over the world? And we're kind of going downhill in some respects. I think it's this faith issue. <clears throat> the songs of the early church, uh, just study them and you will see the same kind of faith. In contrast, the bulk of the church today has a faith that we're going to lose. Not the faith of the early church that 
of the increase of Christ's kingdom and of peace, there will be no end. We have a faith that we're going to lose, so we do lose. According to your faith, be it unto you, right? Um, that's that's uh, straight from the lips of Christ. And um, this is why I monitor the top songs of the church. When you see the church singing songs like the earth shakes at the sound of his voice or rent collectives, build your kingdom now, or many of the songs that we've adopted in our church, you know that the church of Jesus Christ as a whole, I think, is beginning to turn a corner. There are a number of songs like that in the last decade. The faith of the church can be measured by its songs. Songs of revelation are a word of testimony that make the demons tremble. In fact, in one of the songs, it says, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Okay, what comes out of their mouth? The word of their testimony has something to do uh, with that victory. Uh, the wrath of Satan cannot extinguish the singing of the church. By the way, even if somebody dies, even if a local church gets exterminated, the church in heaven continues to sing this victory. It is nonstop advancement of Christ's kingdom. And yes, do soldiers lose their lives? They do. And they get medals in heaven for having lost their lives. I, I've many times thought it would be cool to be a martyr uh, for Christ. But we are victors in life. We are victors in death. We need to maintain that. By the way, this singing, this victory singing is one of the things that distinguishes Christianity from almost every other religion. They'll have maybe some professionals who sing, but not the saints who have this confidence. And so music plays a big part in the victory being celebrated in this book. Like Jehoshaphat, people were walking into overwhelming odds with the odds stacked against them and yet confident. Unseen principalities and powers were seeking to destroy the city of God by every means possible. They were surrounded on every side by brazen and defiant assaults of Satan against God's truth. And by the way, there are many countries today where the cause of Christ seems just as doomed as Feldkirk did, at least from a human perspective. And yet in the book of Revelation, God's people sing. They sing in the face of persecution. They sing in the face of martyrdom. They sing in the face of vast opposition. And in all of these songs of Zion, we see a note of triumph and victory that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, not even death. When Jesus was caught up into heaven out of sight of the gazing apostles, a whole new viewpoint on life was opened up to them. And they began thinking, not in terms of the horizontal, they began thinking in terms of the kingdom of heaven invading earth. And certainly after Pentecost, they were turned from fearful disciples into bold apostles uh, who were convinced of the reality of Christ's invisible power. And Revelation 4, which is filled with songs, is one of those uh, chapters that invites us to get a glimpse of that invisible realm where the risen Savior has gone. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in the sky, and the first voice that I heard, like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I'll show you the things that must take place after these. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and there a throne set in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And as John gazes at the God that he loved, who sits on this throne and the might of Jesus Christ, he is transformed. All of a sudden, Rome does not seem so invincible anymore. People who think it's invincible, he would say, no way, it is not. 
Nero and later on Titus became possessed by that horrible, horrible demon known as the beast. But that demon is no match for our risen Lord. So face to face with this awesome sight, all doubts vanish of whether God's power and grace are sufficient. John is overwhelmed by what he sees in God. God's holiness, his eternity, his power are continually before him as the angels sing, holy, 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 Lord God almighty, not half mighty, almighty, who was and is and is to come. He has no doubts whatsoever about whether the Lord is in charge. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Not even the enemies could exist if it was not a part of God's plan. They are pawns in his hand. So why do we sing in the church? Well, there are many reasons, but one of the reasons illustrated in the Bible is that there is a spiritual power that flows when we cut loose. We sing with a loud voice, with faith, unto God. Uh, look, for example, at chapter 11, verses 16 through 19. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones in God's presence fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We thank you, O Lord God Almighty, he who is and who was and who was coming, because you have taken up your great power and begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath came, even the time for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your slaves, the prophets, and to the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and to destroy those who have corrupted the earth. And verse 19 tells us what happened as a result. And the temple of God in heaven was opened. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord was in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and huge hail. <laughs> so why do we sing with all of our heart in worship? It's because we want to see the ark of the covenant in heaven. We want to see God so pleased with the extravagance of our commitment to him, he sends forth lightnings and noises and earthquakes upon the earth to advance his kingdom. I want worship to be more than just a comfortable celebration. The songs of Revelation, when you study them, are the songs of the stout-hearted men. Stout-hearted. They are the roar of Wallace's army. It is anything but passivity. Music is connected heart and soul with the advancement of God's kingdom. And I believe that the music of many churches needs to be adjusted if we are to see world-conquering faith to arise. Our worship on earth, if it's done in the spirit with Christ's presence and it's done in faith, affects the movements of the armies of heaven. The bottom line is what we sing reflects what we believe. If we sing the sentimental songs of mystics, we cannot complain if there is no change in society. If we refuse to sing the songs of judgment, like the one I just read or the one in chapter 16, which calls God to destroy uh, his enemies, we should not be surprised if God's uh, enemies continue to flourish. You have not because you ask not. You know, if you're not asking God to destroy them, why would he destroy them? Uh, according to your faith, be it unto you. Many churches refuse to sing the imprecatory psalms of the Old Testament because they have such strong language. But if you study the language of the songs, and we can't get to all of them in Revelation, they're even more fierce, if that is possible, 
I actually had a, a liberal pastor talk with me or argue with me is more like it for several hours. What a waste of time. But um, he told me that he didn't believe in the God of the Old Testament because that God was so vindictive and cruel. He believed in the God of love in the New Testament. So I just pulled out my Bible and said, excuse me, sir, let me just read a couple of passages from the God in the New Testament. I started reading these songs in Revelation and I pointed out to him that if anything, these songs from the God of the New Testament are even more fierce, if that is possible, than the Old Testament ones. We are dealing with the same God of love and wrath. And he was stunned. He didn't know what to do for a moment. And finally, just slowly, he said, well, I guess I don't believe in the God of the New Testament either because my God is a God of love. And I told him that his God was a figment of his own imagination and uh, was not real, and that if he did not repent and give unconditional surrender to the God of the Bible, he would face the same fierce judgments that this God of wrath was pouring out in the book of Revelation. Needless to say, he wasn't too happy with me, but um, where do we go on that rabbit trail? <laughs> What was I talking about? Okay, I guess the point is there is no conflict between the songs of the Old Testament and the New Testament. These are not songs for wimps. These are manly songs. In chapter 6, the believers at the altar call for judgment on their enemies. In chapter 16, after the angel sings about the righteousness of those judgments being poured out, those at the altar say, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. They agree with God's severe judgments. They celebrate them. And it's singing language like this that begins to help us to gain the mind of Christ and to begin realizing, yes, his holiness is so much greater than we can imagine. Our sinfulness is so much worse than most people could possibly imagine that we come into agreement uh, with his judgments. The songs of the church in the last 60 years have turned the church away from being the church militant to being the church complacent. And you cannot have a vision of the resurrected Savior in Revelation and be complacent. Now, I'm not saying all of the worship music is that way. I've seen some very encouraging signs of a militant, uh, faith-filled music that's coming from some circles. Now the next point says that Revelation songs help to shape the minds and hearts of the church. So it's not just that our songs move the angels in heaven, the songs of heaven impact our hearts and minds and move us to action. Okay, we become what we sing. The poet Carlyle said, let me make a nation's songs and I care not who makes their laws. Songs have an incredibly powerful impact upon a nation and upon a church. This is one of the reasons why the commies uh, put so much effort into corrupting America through songs, through movies, through other things like that. But anyway, do you have faith to sing the song of chapter 15? This is the one that we started with in, in, in the bulletin before the sermon. And I'm going to read at least a portion of it, starting at verse 2. <clears throat> And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who prevailed over the beast and over his image and over the number of his name standing on the glassy sea, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the slave of God, the song, 
Song of the Lamb saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who could not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, because you alone are holy, because all the nations will come and do obeisance before you, because your righteous judgments have been manifested. Now, in their song, they recognize God's judgments result in all of the nations eventually coming to worship Christ, which means they're redemptive judgments in history. By redemptive judgment, yes, some enemies are destroyed, but in the process, God retrieves and brings out of the ashes a people for himself. They're redemptive judgments. And notice in verse 5 what happens as a result of such a song of faith. After these things I looked, and the sanctuary of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. There it is again. Heaven is opened to the songs of Zion. Oh, Lord, if we could only have heaven opened to the worship of the church of Jesus Christ in America, I think we would see incredible changes in America. Anyway, he goes on. And out from the sanctuary came the seven angels, the ones having the seven plagues, and he goes on to speak of the judgments that came upon Rome and upon Israel that resulted in one of the greatest missionary movements in the last 2,000 years, uh, re resulting in Rome itself becoming Christianized. So it's a matter of focus. If our focus is on the earth, we may complain, we may grow disheartened, we may throw up the white flag of surrender, but when you start singing these songs of faith, it is hard to maintain a white flag pessimism. It's very, very difficult to do that. But when you start singing these songs of faith, they stir your heart to believe God's promises. Part of it, I think, is our bodies themselves are coming into agreement with what we think in our mind. There's, there's an action of faith that accompanies our thoughts of faith. But when we worship at the throne of God, and we see the awesome power of the risen Christ walking among the candlesticks, basically saying, walking in the presence of the church, in the midst of the church, we have faith to ring the resurrection bells of joy in Feldkirk. We can say with Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, for us, every Sunday is Resurrection Day. We don't have to wait for that once a year. And when we celebrate Resurrection Day, we're not just looking back at something that happened 2,000 years ago. We glory in that event, but that event means that we right now are dealing with a risen Savior who is in our midst. Amen? Amen. Now, there's one more point I want to make, and that is that these songs speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They glory in Christ's life, death, and resurrection power. They are gospel-saturated. I've given the number of songs in Revelation based on uh, one official list. There's some that give just slightly less, some that give slightly more. But if you see the song-like statement of the angels in chapter 14 as a, being accompanied by the harps that are playing in verses 1 through 5, there may actually be more songs than 28. They sure seem like that kind of language, and if so, Chapter 14 characterizes these songs as having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, and then what com comes is what appears to be a song. And whether that's true or not, the gospel is clearly present in other songs. I'll look at chapter 5. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, describes the consternation that John felt when no one was worthy to open the scroll, and John wept because there was no mediator. 
But then verse 5 says, So one of the elders says to me, Stop weeping. <clears throat> Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and its seven seals. So Christ's gospel remedy, uh, gospel victory was the remedy for his tears. He lived a perfect life. He died bearing the sins of believers. He rose triumphant from the grave. He became the prevailing lion, right? And this leads to worship in earth and heaven. Verse 8, when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having harps and golden bowls full of incenses, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and language and people and ethnic nation. And you have made them kings and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Now that's a song of faith because it takes faith to believe that Christ shed blood can cleanse me of all my sins, all my sins. It takes faith to believe that our union with Christ instantly makes us kings who have authority, makes us priests who are capable of, of uh, reconciling others to Christ. Uh, it takes um, a faith to sing any of these things, but the only way that we can have that faith is if we know the risen Lord, if we've encountered him. And these redeemed ones are so overwhelmed with their own unworthiness and with all that they owe to him that they, uh, they Praise comes very, very naturally. In fact, in chapter 5, the praise just keeps coming in an ever-increasing crescendo. Verse 11 continues, And I looked, and I heard, as it were, the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living beings, and the elders, and their number was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands, saying with a great voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive the power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So Christ gave up all so that we could be saved. And in return, these saints are giving everything to Jesus. So face to face with their Lord, they realize how horrible it is to be selfish, to be consumed with our own desires and our own fleshly uh, impulses. And they say, Lord, we owe you everything. We're going to give everything back to you. He has given everything to them. They give everything back to him. And in John's vision, the saints are merely joining what the entire creation owes to Christ. Verses 13 through 14. And every creature which is in the heaven and upon the earth and under the earth and those upon the sea and everything in them, I heard them all saying, To him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb, the blessing and the honor and the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. And the four living beings saying the Amen. And the elders fell and did obeisance. Perhaps there is someone here this morning that does not know the risen Lord. You've never met him. You don't know the reality of his presence in your life. Perhaps you feel so overwhelmed with the evil that's come against you. You feel so overwhelmed by uh, heartache and other things like that that you wonder uh, whether it's even worth living. Let me assure you, if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will sustain you. He will cause you to triumph. And let me clarify, it doesn't mean necessarily that your aches and pains are going to go away, your persecution is going to go away. Sometimes God does that, sometimes he does not. But it does guarantee he will give you a joy that will enable you to triumph in and through those circumstances and even be able to face death with total confidence. 
I read a story that happened during the Finnish-Russian War, and I may have shared this uh, in a previous sermon. I did a search, and I couldn't find that I shared this. I always forget if I've uh, shared illustrations before, but this is, uh, illustrates it so well. This story was witnessed by a Finnish officer who came to Christ through what he saw, and I'm just going to go ahead and read it as told by Robert Coleman. After one of the battles, a number of red prisoners were placed under this Finnish officer's guard, seven of whom were sentenced to be shot at dawn the next day. Confined in a cold basement room, the condemned men with unrestrained anguish swore and beat on the walls with their bleeding fists. However, the officer, standing alongside, noticed one prisoner, Koskinen by name, who was different from the rest. While the others raved and cursed, he sat quietly on his bench. Then after a while, in a wavering voice that grew stronger, he began to sing, Safe in the arms of Jesus, safe on his gentle breast, there by his love or shaded, sweetly my soul shall rest. Over and over he sang the words. When he stopped, a wild-eyed man erupted. Where did you get that, you fool? The man looked at his comrades with tear-filled eyes and replied, You ask me where I get this song. It was from the Salvation Army. I heard it three weeks ago. My mother sang about Jesus and prayed to him. <clears throat> he paused a moment as if to gather courage, then rising to his feet and looking straight in front of him, he said, It is cowardly to hide your beliefs. <clears throat> the God of my mother believed in is now my God. As I lay awake, I saw mother's face before me. It reminded me of the song I heard. I prayed that Christ would forgive me and make me ready to stand before him. Since then, this verse has been sounding within me. I can no longer keep it to myself. You are right, said one comrade. If only I knew there was mercy for me too, but I have reviled God and trampled on all that is holy. Sinking to the floor in despair, he groaned. Pray for me, Koskinen. The two red soldiers went down on their knees and prayed for each other. It was no longer prayer, but it reached heaven. A door seemed to open to another world, and everyone sensed the nearness of an unseen, hallowed presence. Before long, all the prisoners were on their faces before God. As they prayed and wept, an indescribable, <clears throat> indescribable change took place. The Spirit of God filled the room, and the conversation turned to spiritual things. Truth hidden from kings and queens, but revealed to babes. Occasionally they would break into singing, not only the favorite song of Koskinen, but verses and choruses of others long forgotten. The soldiers on guard united with them, for the power of God had touched them all. The angels must have joined in too, as Zion's praises resounded through the crisp early morning air. At daybreak, as the first rays of light came over the horizon, the condemned men were marched out to the place of execution. Standing before the firing squad, they asked that the usual covering not be placed over their heads and that they be allowed to sing for one last time Koskinen's song. Permission was granted. So before the command to fire was given, the seven men lifted their hands to heaven and with uncovered faces <coughs> sang with all their might, safe, <coughs> safe in the arms of Jesus, safe on his gentle breast. There by his love o'ershaded, sweetly my soul shall rest. Hark, tis the voice of angels, born in a song to me, over the fields of jasper, over the crystal sea. Now I know that that song is not as deep, but when you're needing comfort, knowing, 
knowing the embrace of Christ is powerful. And the story doesn't tell whether they sang the rest of the hymn before they were shod, but the hymn goes on to tell how you can know Christ in this personal way as well. It says, Jesus, my heart's dear refuge, Jesus has died for me, firm on the rock of ages, ever my trust shall be. Here let me wait with patience, wait till the night is o'er, wait till I see the morning break on the golden shore, safe in the arms of Jesus, safe on his gentle breast, there by his love or shaded, sweetly my soul shall rest. And so I would say to you, Jesus is calling and all of the angels of heaven beckon you to come to the risen Savior. Put your trust in his finished work of redemption. Tell Jesus, I believe your shed blood is sufficient to cleanse me of all of my sin. I believe that your imputed righteousness is sufficient to make me perfect. And as you do, he will give you what he speaks of as a joy indescribable and full of glory, a joy that passes all understanding, a joy that will make you want to enthrone him on your praises. And we'll give you an opportunity to sing in a moment, but let's go to prayer. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you for the songs of Revelation. We thank you for the direction that it gives of having our hearts bursting with adoration of your greatness. I thank you for this study that we're going through uh, before worship, uh, knowing God and the glories of what it means to know you in a deeper and a richer way. I pray that our hearts would never cease growing in their admiration for you, growing in their understanding of what you have provided for us, but who you are in and of yourself, that you never change. Where we change always, you never change. We bless you, Father and uh, pray that you would give to us an ability to sing with faith, to pray with faith, to worship with faith. We recognize many times how weak we are, and so with the apostles who uh, begged Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. Father, we say not only teach us to pray, teach us how to sing, how to worship, how to adore you, how to be caught up into the heavenly uh, realm. Teach us by your grace, fill us by your spirit, uh, draw our hearts away from everything that tugs at them and enable us to live as those who are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.